Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I got the opportunity to catch up with Jen Tan, who specializes in cybersecurity law. Jen discusses her approach to how the legal side of things should be working alongside an internal security team. Jen discusses her opinion on what's on the horizon when it comes to cyber law and talks through her thoughts on this. If you're keen to learn more about what Jen has to say, then please keep on listening. Welcome, Jen. Now, I think it was on Twitter. Someone put us in contact and it's an area that I've wanted to explore for a while. You've got quite an extensive background in this area. So I'm definitely keen to dive in more about sort of your thoughts, your opinions and your experience in this space. But before we get to that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So can you please talk to our listeners through where you started to where you are now? Yeah, sure. So I actually had quite a traditional background. I started out by spending five and a half years doing a double degree in law and commerce. And um, when I graduated, I had a choice of pursuing law or accounting, but I was already working in a large law firm. So I decided to continue down the law path. And I was um, a litigation lawyer back when the GFC hit. And the week that I started my role, a lot of people were getting made redundant. But for some reason, litigation seemed to be booming. So I was working with clients to resolve their disputes in their business and commercial relationships. Um, But the problem was for me, this was all at the back end. And this is where, you know, the parties have falling out and we're just really trying to resolve the disputes. And what I really wanted most of all was to get in at the outset and really mm-hmm. help them at the start. So that's when I moved to corporate and commercial law. And since then, I've been helping clients with their structuring and establishing their business, uh, mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, seeking mm-hmm. investments, drafting contracts and protecting the assets. Um, and then the reason why I started specializing in cybersecurity was that quite a few years ago, I was approached by a cybersecurity company and I ended up helping them with all of their legal needs. So they did red teaming and penetration testing for companies all around the world, including large defense companies in Australia. And so it was really crucial to manage their risks and liabilities. So I helped them to prepare uh, their terms and conditions, review their insurance policy to make sure that their insurance actually covered them for what they were doing. And um, that was really the catalyst for my interest. And now, yeah, my passion in cybersecurity has just grown ever since then. That's a really interesting point that you raised. I was at a conference actually just uh, recently and uh, one of the ladies was talking about really double check your policy because even if you are breached, there are certain uh, there are certain items that actually aren't covered at all. What's your sort of opinion on people, I guess, being very assumptive and getting a cybersecurity insurance policy, but then they sort of work out when things unfortunately and they sometimes can go bad and then they sort of feel very blindsided by that? Yeah, I think that cyber insurance policies are still very much at its infancy um, and there's a long ways to go compared to some of the other business type insurances that are out there. So it's a matter of just reviewing them very carefully in in terms of uh, what's included and uh, all of the exclusions as well. I've just recently reviewed a couple of insurance policies for our firm. Um, and it was like comparing apples and oranges. One was quite inclusive and and it was quite comprehensive. And the other one just had a lot of exclusions. And, and you could mm. tell just from having a look at the, the, the wording that one was a lot better than the other. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. I think that was, I think that was something that when I was listening to this presentation, it's something that people aren't doing. So if you're listening and you haven't reviewed your insurance policy, I'd recommend you going and doing that or speak to someone like Jen. But Jen, let's sort of start by getting a bit of a lay of the land, like when it comes to cybersecurity law. And can you, can you sort of paint a high level picture of how this is fitting into our industry? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that there is a lot of uncertainty by companies about what law is actually applied to them in terms of cybersecurity. And it very much depends on whose perspective we're looking at as to what laws apply. So if I start from the big picture perspective and work my way down, so starting at the top, there are laws against cybercrime and that covers different types such as gaining unauthorized access to computer systems, modifying data, attacks on electronic communication, phishing or online fraud, uh, infection of IT systems, um, possessing any hacking tools, identity theft or fraud and electronic theft. And the penalties are, can be quite severe and they range from two years to 10 years imprisonment. But the difficulty with this is that the cyber criminals and perpetrators are located all over the world and they're very hard to track down. So these laws are actually very hard to enforce. Um, and when we look at businesses, depending on the size and nature of the business, the main law that they actually need to be aware of is the Privacy Act. And this was updated in Australia in 2018 to introduce some of the mandatory obligations to notify the regulator and individuals when there is a data breach relating to personal information. And this is known as the um, Notifiable Data Breach Scheme or NDB scheme. And it's really important that businesses put measures in place so that they comply with these obligations because the penalties are also quite severe. Uh, I think that the problem with these laws is that they tend to focus on personal information of individuals only. There aren't actually any specific laws that deal with business and commercial information, um, confidential information that sets competitors apart, and any other types of internal corporate information. And all of these types of information is extremely important to the success or downfall of, of a business. Mm -hmm. So if we delve down a little bit further, we have regulators who have said that cyber risk is one of the main key risks that all businesses need to focus on. They set out guidance to companies about expecting that the boards have some cyber resilience and good practices. And there's an expectation on directors and boards that they need to have good cyber strategy, use cyber resilience as a management tool, and to deal with cyber risk just like any other risk. So I think what is important to understand is that cybersecurity is not just an IT issue and we can't just rely on the law to protect us because the law is insufficient um, and the whole organization needs to have buy-in and get involved in establishing cybersecurity. So do you think since the NDB scheme came into place uh, last year, do mm. you believe that it's sort of giving companies a bit of a kick in the pants to say, well, we now need to be focusing on this because they're obligated to because they are now by law sort of instructed to do that? Have you sort of seen a bit of a difference in terms of uptake or people taking a bit more seriously? Certainly. Uh, we've been updating a lot of their privacy policies, but also a lot of their internal procedures, um, working on their incident response plan, because ultimately they need to have procedures and steps in place so that when a security incident occurs and the data breach is an eligible data breach, then they'll know when they need to notify the regulators and when they need to notify individuals. Another interesting point you raised before, you talked around their confidential uh, information within uh, large mm -hmm. enterprises, that that's not really protected by law. Why do you think that is? I think that it's very much about, you know, this is really the assets of a company and it's up to the company as to how they protect their own their own information and their own assets. 
Um, we certainly don't have any sort of laws that regulate that. So I think that there is a shortfall in that aspect. And then we can always talk about that a little bit later, I think, about, you know, where I see the gaps in the law, perhaps. So, Jen, what are some of the gaps you're seeing in the market when it comes to the appetite towards the uptake to cybersecurity law? I think as an industry and as part of the increased focus by the Australian government, there has been some progress in uh, raising awareness amongst the business community that they need to take cybersecurity seriously. Um, but I think, as I mentioned earlier, the laws that make cybercrime illegal don't actually stop the cybercriminals from all around the world from continuing to attack businesses. So it's really hard to enforce. Um, and the laws requiring companies and businesses to have security measures are focused around protecting people's personal information. And even in those situations, that only applies to certain businesses, not all. So because there aren't any specific and express laws dealing with businesses in protecting their own digital assets and confidential information, it's left up to the individual companies and the businesses which turn a blind eye and don't take those steps to become cyber resilient seriously, then they're really putting themselves at serious risk. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that when I attended the Australian Cybersecurity Strategy for 2020 a couple of months ago, there was a lot of talk about education starting from schools uh, through individuals and businesses and raising awareness. And I think the regulators have expressed that expectation that companies need to do more. And I expect that it's only a matter of time before more laws are introduced, which require companies to comply with cyber security obligations. And I sort of um, draw analogies with cyber obligations and accounting or tax laws, because cyber risk, after all, is just like any other risk, like financial or accounting risk. And there should be laws to regulate that. So you mentioned before that certain businesses are covered and and some are not in terms of if someone were to be penalised for Mm. sort of a data breach. Uh, what businesses or are they different sectors or is it sort of the size uh, of the business in particular that you're referring to? Yeah, so uh, the Privacy Act doesn't apply to every single business. It applies to only certain businesses which have a $3 million turnover or businesses which um, trade in personal information. And it also includes a, a few other businesses that fall within specific categories. So it doesn't actually apply to every single business. And because it doesn't apply to every single business, do you sort of see that as, I guess, a bit of a downfall? Because maybe uh, some of these companies could go from zero to, to 10 million and within 12 months, some of these, are, especially in the startup space, do you think that sort of still is a bit of a problem because maybe they're not thinking it's something they need to consider? Certainly. I think that it um, might fall off their radar or they just aren't aware that the Privacy Act can apply to them. And so when they do go beyond the 3 million threshold, then uh, they'll find themselves in a position where we don't have any privacy policies established. We don't have any internal procedures. And if they experience a data breach, it's going to be a significant consequences. So can you explain how cybersecurity law should be working alongside an internal security team? And I ask this because I've worked in large enterprises before. I've worked in a bank before. We had some privacy people sitting there as well. Some of them were lawyers. We had a bit of a a small legal team as well. But I'm really keen to hear your thoughts because, Mm. like I said, integrating uh, cybersecurity law with security is still quite a uh, immature Mm -hmm. way of looking at things from, I guess, a structural theory point of view. So I'm really keen to hear your opinions on that. Definitely. Um, I think that it is a growing approach and whether they're a large organisation with a CISO and an in-house lawyer 
or a small organization with the IT manager trying to handle the security aspects. There are many ways that a cybersecurity lawyer can help and work with the internal security team. And that really starts right from the top at the board and management level with education. So sometimes the IT or security team needs help with educating the board on why they need to have buy-in and why they need to treat cyber seriously um, and to help them with getting more budget to improve cybersecurity. So that's where I could come in and talk to the directors and managers, educating them on their director's duties, the legal requirements, what it means for the organisations, the personal liability that could fall on the directors personally, what the regulators are expecting and the severe consequences of not having adequate cyber resilience. Um, And then I can go on to talking about the obligations. So depending on whether they have an in-house lawyer, I can help them to navigate the legal requirements, what the organization needs to comply with and what their reporting obligations are. I know that there've been some organizations where they have had an in-house lawyer And I've actually worked with the in-house lawyer to plug in the gaps in knowledge and expertise because Mm -hmm. the in-house lawyer may be across all of the legal issues regarding the business, but not specifically in respect of cyber or data protection or privacy. Another aspect would be the incident response planning. So I help the internal security team with the legal aspect of an incident response I plug in the things to consider and the steps to take in a response management plan, dealing with things like reporting obligations, dealing with the regulator, how to notify individuals, looking at the company's contracts and seeing what obligations are imposed on them. Also working with the board and management on how to deal with a crisis situation, building a communication plan and having those pre-drafted notification statements So that when you are in the middle of a crisis, you have well thought out and well planned responses that have already been discussed and approved with IT, legal, the board, management and marketing. And then when you do experience a security incident, you can just take it out and say, yep, we've got the the bulk of the words already set out. We just need to plug in the details of this specific breach. Uh, Another aspect would be contracts. So these days, every business deals with third parties whether they're contractors, suppliers, customers, or service providers. So there is that additional layer of complexity and risk because if they get attacked or if you get attacked, you need to be able to know who bears the liability that flows from that incident. So if let's say you have to pay money to a third party, but that party gets hacked and as a result, you transferred money under instructions that you receive from uh, a compromised email account, and the compromised email account have sent you an email saying, our bank account details have changed. Please transfer money to this other account. So if you've transferred money to this other account, are you at fault or are they? Because all the contract says is you must pay them for their services, but they say you haven't paid them. You've paid some other cyber criminal in Nigeria. So in their eyes, they haven't been paid. So in that situation, who's liable? Um, And I think people are certainly working and moving towards having those cybersecurity clauses in their contracts. So who would be liable in that case? So someone's trying to pay someone, obviously, uh, like you said, cyber criminal from Nigeria has obviously taken the money. If I'm a legal uh, point of view, who actually would be then liable for that sort of incident? 
Well, at the moment, there aren't any precedent in Australia, so it's very hard to um, determine. That's why parties will get into a dispute. So we are actually acting for a, a matter at the moment and this specific scenario where the, the contract is silent. So we're, we're probably going to have to fight in court and wait for the judge to determine who's at fault. Mm-hmm. And that can be a very, very costly exercise, which could be very much and very easily avoided if we just had cybersecurity clauses in the contracts. Most definitely. One of the things I'd like to ask you when you talked about sort of you go in speak to the board about uh, compliance, mm. ha- has there been a lot of incidents in your experience that you've gone in and a lot of boards actually don't know that they need to be compliant, that there is a, le- a regulator or a government body that they need to obviously comply with? Very much so. So I actually did a session and there was about 150 C-suite execs and directors on the board and um, they came and listened to this workshop and I would say that 80 or 90% just weren't aware that there were obligations um, that they need to comply with or that they w- could be personally held liable. Um, so once they had heard about these obligations, I think it really scared them. Mm-hmm. So on that note, from your opinion, how do you think regulators should be sort of communicating that like a little bit better than probably what they currently are? Do you have any sort of advice on how they should be talking to these? So these people that you just said, 150 people in the room, 80 to 90% mm. of them had no clue, like that's quite high mm. for people mm. in quite senior positions. So mm. do you sort of think that maybe the regulators aren't doing a very good job at communicating those sort of requirements? I think that because there are just so many laws to comply with, people are perhaps more focused on, you know, the operational side of things rather than cybersecurity. And it is still, you know, a growing uh, focus. And the regulators have released quite a lot of their guidance. I mean, like ASIC and APRA, they have released papers where they've said, these are the things that we expect you to establish in your organization. And we expect you to have some level of uh, cyber literacy. So I think it's just a matter of us getting the word out there and and making sure that they are aware of of these practice guidance notes and that we help them to navigate through that. Or alternatively, reaching out to Jen to be like, help me, I've got no idea. And you'd be (laughs) able to help them navigate those. Well, some of them are actually uh, very, very long and there's a lot of, there's a lot of jargon in there. And I think it doesn't make sense to a lot of people who, who aren't uh, from a legal background like yourself. Certainly. And I think that that sort of ties in with that staff education piece as well, because um, not only does the board and the and the management team need to be aware of these obligations, the staff also need to be educated on, you know, when we do develop these policies internally, we can't just get it filed in a, you know, filing cabinet and never look at it again. So to get maximum protection and value, the, the staff need to be also cyber aware and understand, you know, if they're not sure of a threat to actually notify someone and know what to do when an incident occurs. I spoke at a risk management conference recently and I sort of said that when it comes to crisis management, that would tie into an incident response plan that if you've mm-hmm. got a plan, like you said, sitting in your filing cabinet, that that's not that's not helpful. Are you seeing that a lot? Are people just thinking that, oh, well, I'll just create it because I have to, tick in the box, done, gets filed away in some random filing cabinet in the basement. Is that really the reality of what's happening in most organisations? Um, I would say that that has been the practice for other types of policies, but I've um, been seeing that, I guess, because cybersecurity is still quite new and when we do develop these policies, people are taking a lot more notice. And very recently, I acted for one of the largest uh, currency management provider in Australia and I helped them with their incident response management plan. And within, I would say, a few weeks, they were affected by a very high profile data breach. They weren't involved in the data breach, but 
a third party provider of them was involved in a data breach. And we had to call on this incident response plan, which we could just whip out and know what to do straight away. Mm -hmm. So in that moment of crisis, we were able to fall back on this. I think that people are certainly paying a lot more attention now in terms of cybersecurity. But I think there's been a lot of other policies that companies haven't been paying attention to in the past and they've just sat in the filing cabinet. Mm-hmm. I definitely have heard stories uh, when when you spoke about sitting in the filing cabinet. So hopefully uh, if your policy is sitting in the filing cabinet, I'd suggest that you not do that and uh, actually run mini simulations on this as well because, I mean, it's all for one for having a policy there in terms of an incident response framework, but you also need to practice it as well. Mm. So, Jen, like you mentioned before, that this is still an area that's new, it's evolving, people still haven't quite gotten used to that this is what they need to do, these are things they need to incorporate into their business. What do you believe is on the horizon from a legal point of view? I think that as the regulators continue to issue more of these practice guidance notes and as we get the word out there, people are going to improve their cyber resilience and their cyber security. I think in South Australia, we have been so incredibly lucky that um, there's been a lot of initiatives that have been developed. Um, We've got, you know, the ACSC, we've got the Australian Cyber Collaboration Centre, we've got Cyber, And I think that these industry bodies and government bodies will help bring businesses across the line and establish some standard of um, cybersecurity that they will have implemented in their organisation. And that's going to really help lift the standards in Australia. So you've got regulators predominantly in financial mm. sector in terms of ASIC APRA. Do you think mm. that regulators in terms of people have to have a level of compliance will span across more industries than what they currently are in at the moment? Is that sort of something that you're sort of seeing on the horizon as well? Certainly. I think APRA, yes, it, it generally focuses on that financial sector and superannuation and insurance. Um, but ASIC does cover you know, all of the companies that that are incorporated in Australia. So um, they do have broader reach than just the financial sector. So hopefully once the companies um, are aware, I think that's the first step, it's awareness piece, it's being educated and understanding that you do have requirements and then finding someone to help you navigate those requirements. I think that businesses will really get across the line a, a lot better. I actually said this in the um, the Australian cybersecurity strategy. I mm-hmm. um, suggested that there be some new laws that are implemented that do apply to all businesses across the industries. Um, and I think Australia has obviously a long way to go and we've got great examples that we can follow, um, as you mentioned. So I think that it's just a matter of time before it will flow to different industries. Mm-hmm. I think the reason why regulators like APRA have put a lot of focus on the, the financial industries, obviously, because you know, we're dealing with people's money here and there's a lot at stake. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's very important that we have strict and really stringent requirements to protect individuals, you know, vulnerabilities, whereas that hasn't been as much of a focus with other types of businesses where perhaps their vulnerabilities relate to their own corporate assets. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that sort of leads back to what we discussed previously about how, you know, the laws are focused on personal information rather than corporate assets. So it's really at this stage, you know, we, we don't know what the, the laws will be in the future, but I think at this stage, businesses just need to take it on board themselves mm-hmm. and use their initiative to protect your own valuable assets. Mm-hmm. 
What type of advice can you provide to executives looking to deepen their knowledge in this area? Because as you mentioned, there's still a lot of senior people out there who probably aren't Mm -hmm. aware and it's not necessarily their fault. It's just something that's probably come up quite quickly. Mm -hmm. They haven't had people like yourself that's been internal to help them uh, navigate around their requirements. So what's some probably your top three things that people should take away from this interview? I think as executives, you need to understand that there is an expectation on you to have an appropriate framework to identify and manage cyber risk. You need to treat cyber risk like any other risk in your organisation. And how do you do that? You you have to understand the risk. You have to be informed on on how that risk is to be managed within the organisation and develop some cyber literacy. And you do this by continually educating yourself, um, listening to podcasts like this, um, engaging experts, both from the technical security point, as well as legal experts who do specialise in cybersecurity to come in and guide you through your duties, responsibilities, legal obligations, and then actually be proactive and take positive steps to put yourself in a position where you are a more difficult target than the next business. You know, after all, I'm sure you've heard the saying that you don't need to outrun the lion, just the person next to you. So Mm -hmm. there are simple things that you can do to make yourself more difficult to attack than the next business. And the criminals operate just like anyone else. You know, they target the low hanging fruit. So don't make yourself the low hanging fruit. And I think the, the next step would be to put yourself in a position where you can respond quickly and appropriately when you get attacked so that you minimize the disruption to your operations, the amount of money that you lose, the potential damage that's caused to your business reputation and um, potential loss of customer confidence, and just to make sure that you comply with your contractual and legal obligations. Well, I think that's definitely very thorough and I think that there's some really key takeaways there. So if you are an executive listening, I'd recommend that you do take note of what Jen has said. Jen, I'd like to sort of move the last part of our interview and really focusing on an area that I focus a lot in and that's the startup and the scale-up area. So a lot of our listeners actually do work in this space and they are companies that are growing, they're booming. What sort of advice would you give specifically to their stage in their life cycle? So I've worked with quite a few startup companies and also companies in the growth phase, not just in cyber, but in just technology. And I think that the biggest issue that they face is dealing with competing demands, you know, demands on your time, your resources, your finances. And one of the most common mistakes that um, you can make is taking shortcuts and not setting yourselves up for success upfront. You know, it's very true that if you do it properly and right at the start, it will save you a lot of time and money and heartache down the track. And this is especially true when it comes to structuring your business correctly, having good contracts in place, whether it's your terms and conditions, your service agreements, or your contractor or employment agreements. And I think dedicating just some resources up front can save you from wasting tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars down the track when you have a dispute and a poorly drafted contract. And you can take it from me in my experience in litigation where I've seen where things have gone horribly wrong. People can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars disputing and going to litigation and Mm -hmm. arguing over one or two clauses in a contract. You know, I think a lot of people do focus on, oh, we just need to save money right now. We're still a small company. We would like to allocate our resources to, you know, building our business and and uh, building our brand. But there is no point in building and scaling up so fast and leaving your, your structuring and your contracts behind because you will find yourself in a position where it is just too late and you're going to waste a lot more money 
in fighting over something that ultimately is going to be very difficult to fix. I think there are plenty of startups and companies in their growth stage who you know, use local advisors like your local accountant or lawyer or a sole practitioner to set up. And it becomes quite apparent when, you know, reviewing their documents that they're just not where they should be Mm. or they're not tailored for your specific industry and they don't deal with or manage the risks and liabilities that arise from the particular industry. So I think it's very important to be partnering with the right type of advisors who have worked with plenty of, you know, other clients in your industry and can identify the types and risks for your businesses and help you to manage them properly. So I, um, you know, have worked with a number of cybersecurity companies and when they started out, they used the sole practitioner and they, the sole practitioner might be good in incorporating the company, but when it comes to drafting the terms and conditions and really understanding what your business is, the nature of your business, what you're actually offering clients and the risks and exposures when you do provide those services, if they don't understand those aspects, then it's going to be very difficult to draft appropriate terms and conditions to limit and manage your liabilities for those aspects. So I think, you know, in terms of cybersecurity and the industry that we're in, there are still a lot of nuances with this industry that needs to be taken into account. I think I mentioned before about the cyber laws and that, you know, if you gain unauthorized access to computer systems, that's illegal. So in order to make sure the activities that you are doing aren't illegal, you need to have proper authorization and permissions set out in your contract with clients. And depending on your services, you know, Matt, you may also be accessing the client's very confidential information. So you want to have appropriate protections in place in case anything goes wrong. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting point you raised about the litigation. It's only because uh, our, our lawyer, uh, he specializes in services contracts. And I just said, like, are enough people coming to you to really uh, talk about drafting up appropriate terms and conditions. He's like, go and ask a litigation lawyer and they're going to tell you no, because if they had appropriate terms and conditions implemented in the first place, they wouldn't be at the stage where they're litigating because they (laughs) probably didn't have any terms and conditions drafted. He's like, I've seen work apparently being done through an email and that apparently was a terms and conditions in terms of Mm. a contract. So uh, it's definitely an area that I take very, very seriously. And uh, obviously being in the startup space originally and now in the sort of scale up phase, it's something that I think that people should take seriously in terms of legal and accounting because those are the areas where I think that you can get into a lot of trouble if you're not doing them correctly. Yeah, and I think as well, you know, depending on the different stages that you're in, working in you know a startup phase, you know, those terms and conditions that were drafted initially may have been appropriate, but as you transition to that growth Correct. phase as well, you know, your business might look a lot different to what you were at the startup phase. You may be, you know, providing additional services, um, different clients, you're operating in different countries. So that's when your terms and conditions and also very importantly, your insurance policies need to be updated to adjust for your additional services. Mm, no, 100%. And I think that's definitely something that people should take note as well, that you should be reviewing these annually as well, or uh, as time permits, if your company does scale significantly within three to six months. So Jen, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I know we tried to reschedule this a few times. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out on your day off, I believe. And if people are interested in reaching out to you, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, so people can reach me on my LinkedIn account and yeah, just shoot me an email or connect with me online. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jen. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts, your opinions, and your knowledge on an area that I believe does need a huge spotlight on. So hopefully our listeners got a lot of really good information from listening to our interview today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Carissa. Happy to assist. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.